You are listening to Out of the Blue on 3CR Community Radio, 8.55am. My name's James Whitmore and it's Sunday the 7th of November. This show is being broadcast from the Kulin Nations where sovereignty was never ceded and I pay my respects to elders past, present and to those to come. In the last month, leaders from around the world have met to talk about two of the biggest problems facing the planet, climate change and extinction. Earlier in October, world leaders met for the 15th UN Biodiversity Congress, where they began discussing a new global agreement. On the table is a goal to protect a third of the world's land and sea area by 2030. And this last week, the 26th UN Congress on Climate Change kicked off in Glasgow with goals to halt deforestation by 2030, reach net zero by 2050 and phase out coal up for discussion. Prime Minister Scott Morrison took Australia's commitment to net zero to Glasgow but has been criticised for not aiming higher on Australia's 2030 emissions target. But are these promises enough and what do they mean for Australia's seas? Stay tuned to hear from two experts in this episode, but first, here's an announcement. A message from Victoria's community sector. I'm looking forward to not worrying that my patients are going to die of COVID. To no one else being separated from their mum in aged care. I'm looking forward to our wedding and having our family and friends from overseas here with us. I really want to see my mum. I'm looking forward to being able to welcome guests without a mask on to having all the sports back to normal so that my family members can come and watch me play. I look forward to performing in front of a big crowd again. So please, get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Let's get back to the good things. I ask you to get vaccinated. For all of us. Please get vaccinated. You're listening to Out of the Blue on 3CR Community Radio, 855am. The lands of Indigenous and traditional peoples are home to 80% of the world's biodiversity. From the Amazon to the Arctic to Australia, Indigenous peoples are calling for governments to recognise their land rights and traditional management. Mibu Fisher is a marine ethnoecologist at the CSIRO, and I spoke to her about what Indigenous peoples are looking for when it comes to stopping climate change and biodiversity loss. So Mibu, you're a marine ethnoecologist. Can you tell us a bit about yourself and what that means? Um, yeah, James. So I'm a marine ethnoecologist. Um, I kind of made up the term myself um, <laughs> recently in trying to think what described what I do. And um, it's basically someone like myself who looks at cultures and how different cultures interact with the marine environment and the organisms within that um, with their culture and um, how that relates to marine ecosystems, basically. I'd like to ask you about this Future Seas project that you've been involved with. Can you tell us a bit about how that came about and what it's trying to do? Yeah. Um, So Future Seas came about um, through the Centre for Marine Socioecology, which is a joint centre between CSIRO, the University of Tasmania, and the Australian Antarctic Division. And um, the Future Seas project really was around addressing key challenges that we've identified or have been identified, you know, through various um, UN things like the Sustainable Development Goals and things like that. Um, And kind of looking at it from a future perspective and addressing it in an interdisciplinary way, um, which is something that not many scientists and researchers get the chance to do. And um, 
you know, that's really what needs to be done is having these big interdisciplinary teams to answer these challenges because it's not just enough now to answer it from a marine scientist perspective. It's, you, you know, you need to include psychologists and Indigenous people and health and, and all the different aspects and fields within research in Australia and beyond. Um, and so that was one way for a, a big group of people to come together who are passionate about um, climate change and the impacts that will have on our population and, and to have the opportunity to really um, discuss what we think a future would look like if, um, you know, we continued as business as usual or what a future could look like if we were able to enact all the changes that were currently available to us. Um, and so it kind of, for, for me as a, a lead author in the Indigenous paper, it was um, actually a really difficult um, task to do with, with a paper in being able to appropriately and adequately represent the views of such vast communities. Mm -hmm. you know, we've had Indigenous communities from Greenland to Taiwan um, that have been able to be included in, in the paper. And um, whilst there's lots of similarities between the different groups, there's also big differences in our governments <clears throat> and the way that we've been treated by um, the colonisers and even like the way climate change has impacted on us already. Um, so yeah, it was a really, really big task, but a really great opportunity for us to get together and discuss that. I think one of the biggest things that have come out of it is we, we need more. <laughs> we really need more and we need more um, agency and power to be able to make decisions for our own communities rather than continue this top-down approach of, of governments kind of wanting to include Indigenous people in conversations but actually having no Indigenous people in the implementation or in, you know, in the actual government, I guess. Mm. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of trying to change that narrative of, you know, people are more interested in Indigenous people being included, but now it's, it needs to go beyond that engagement. It needs to go beyond inclusion. It has to be kind of like co-designed, co-led or Indigenous-led, um, mm. really, for, for there to be real significant changes within our communities. I was reading this paper that you that you wrote um, with others about um, the role of Indigenous peoples in protecting marine life. Can you tell us why are Indigenous and traditional people so important to, to addressing climate change and biodiversity loss in the seas? Yeah. Um, so it's particularly Indigenous Australians, which is the context in which um, I'm coming from as an Indigenous Australian myself. Um, we have been passed down knowledge from tens of thousands of years. So with the 10,000 to 8,000 years ago, the, the last kind of sea level rise event happened. And um, specifically in Australia, there's still traditional stories that relate to those events and adaptation techniques and things that have happened since then. Um, so I think that's just like one example of um, why Indigenous people should be included in climate change. Um, adaptation strategies and, and policies and things like that um, because we do have the knowledge um, from our ancestors and it's just a different style of knowledge. We also um, view the world very differently um, to general Western um, worldview. 
and we see um, humans as a part of the system. And I think um, that's something that is unique to many First Nations and Indigenous people around the world. But it's an important way to situate ourselves so we can, um, yeah, like try and address the challenges at a, at a broader scale, not just with Indigenous knowledge, but also with Western science as well. Mm. We're all kind of working towards this goal of addressing climate change and biodiversity loss. Um, and I'm wondering how, you know, it ties in with what Indigenous people are calling for in terms of yeah. land, land justice and um, recognition of sovereignty. Yeah, I think um, one thing to kind of remember is that, yeah, um, Indigenous people around the world have already a similar um, understanding with each other because of that colonisation from many different um, backgrounds, whether it was, you know, the English or the Portuguese or, or Chinese or, or whoever. Um, and that colonisation process has impacted on Indigenous people and that's, you know, taken people away from their land, it's taken people away from their language, which all ties in to environmental systems because of the way Indigenous worldview is. Um, all of that knowledge is held with language and with being on country and all those sorts of things. And so taking Indigenous people off the land has had a drastic influence, um, not just because we're taking people away, but also as to what we're putting in its place in terms of like urbanisation and things like that. Um, so there's like a whole, it's a really complex topic mm. and difficult to answer succinctly, I think. Mm. Um, but I think it's really important that Indigenous people are given the agency to be involved in these processes because it, it's kind of... Um, you know, something that happened to us and we don't, we didn't get a choice that climate change is also impacting us. We didn't get a choice with colonisation. Um, and a lot of people actually, or a lot of communities are viewing climate change almost as a second attempt at genocide to wipe out Indigenous people because it is impacting us like significantly, very significantly with people having to, you know, become climate change refugees, move off land again. It's kind of bringing up all those emotions and connections with colonisation again as well. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so I think enabling Indigenous communities the ability to actually have a voice, be part of the solution and um, actually, you know, be able to share our knowledges in the process, um, you know, all helps towards land rights justice for Indigenous communities, all those sorts of things. Um, it's kind of like a huge shift in the way the world currently works um, because of, you know, inherent differences between different cultures. So at these big overseas meetings at the moment, there's all sorts of talk about, you know, ending deforestation by, net, by 2030, net zero by 2050, protecting a third of the world's, you know, planet, um, land and seas. What do you make of all this? You know, is it enough? Is it what Indigenous people have been calling for? And have Indigenous peoples been listened to enough in these processes? I don't think Indigenous people have had the opportunity to have their voices heard enough. I think there's, you know, the start of good representation at these events um, recently, especially at the moment overseas, I, I do know a couple of people who are over there um, and being able to be a part 
of what's happening. But I think there's a long way to go. Um, there's a really long way to go. And it's not just about, you know, hearing Indigenous voices. It's actually about putting Indigenous people in leadership positions so that we're able to enact change for our communities that benefit our communities as well as people outside our communities. That was Mibu Fisher from the CSIRO. And if you'd like to hear more from Mibu, you can listen to her podcast, That's What I Call Science, produced by a group of women in STEM in Tasmania. After the break, we're going to hear from one of Australia's leading marine scientists on just what climate change and extinction mean for our southern seas. But first, here's a song. This is Butterflies by Baker Boy. You're listening to Out of the Blue on 3CR Community Radio. What's 
music and tired of the news reports and your modern day life is a blues resort put your head in the sand hey this is jane from the herb please support community radio and your local music scene we can't hear you you're listening to out of the blue on 3cr community radio and that was baker boy with butterflies With all this talk of net zero in 2050, it can be hard to imagine what climate change and extinction mean, particularly in the seas where things happen out of sight and out of mind. But the seas are rapidly changing, and Australia's southern seas are changing faster than anywhere. To find out more and what needs to happen to protect the southern seas, I spoke to Greta Peckle from the Institute of Marine and Antarctic Science at the University of Tasmania. How long have you been researching how the oceans are changing? Oh, I've been... uh conducting research since about the late 90s. Um, So most of my original work, though, was uh, just looking at population dynamics and life history. So I looked at, you know, age growth and where people, uh, where where species lived and what kind of habitats they used, that kind of thing. And then in the early 2000s or late 90s, we started noticing new species turning up in in a region that I'd dived in for three or four months of the year for multiple years um, and yeah just started wondering about how systems were, were changing and uh, what that meant for local communities and, and industries and for us. And can you tell us a bit about the changes that you've seen? What's the scale of them and what sort of species are being affected? Yeah, so early on it was just things like uh, the long-spined sea urchin turning up um, and a few new fish species. We, you know, when we'd be diving, we'd see um, uh, southern rock lobster, uh, which is, you know, the usual species uh, off the east coast of Tasmania here, but we started seeing a few eastern rock lobsters um, and just new fish species turning up. Um, So that it didn't really seem to change that much for about 10 years. Um, so, you know, in the sort of the early 2000s, but then from from sort of 2010 on-ish, uh, it seemed to change fairly quickly. And we had, you know, a series of heat wave events, new diseases turn up, uh, urchins massively increasing in abundance, large losses of, of giant kelp. So new species coming in, but also losses of, of things like giant kelp that, that are providing habitat for many other species. In terms of the new species that we're seeing turn up in different parts around uh, around the Australian coastline, there's a number of projects that people can get involved in to help us understand those changes. And one of those is um, the REDMAP project or the Range Extension Database and Mapping Project. And that's a, a citizen science initiative that invites fishers and divers all around the country to send in photographs of species that they spot in locations that they think are unusual for that species. So if someone in Melbourne spots a coral trout, they can take a picture and send it into the website And we have scientists all over the country that verify that information. And it's, you know, used as a really good indication of how our systems are changing, like an early indication of what changes we're seeing. And it gives researchers a a, a heads up of of where we could be targeting more research effort. Mm. And we often hear that 
Southeast Australia is a, a hotspot for climate change in the in the oceans. Can you explain what's going on? Do we know what's driving this change yeah, we, in the region? We do. So the east coast, the main current that um, that flows down the east coast, there is that East Australian current, that current that, that you know pushed or, or brought Nemo's dad cruising <laughs> down down the coast. Um, that's a seasonal current, so it pushes down the coast in um, summer, and then it retreats in winter. And it's you know a sub- subtropical tropical uh, current pushes into Tasmania uh, and then retreats. But as the atmosphere above the Pacific Ocean has been warming, that atmosphere warming leads to a spinning up of the wind field above the Pacific Ocean. So the Pacific Ocean has a wind field. Um, it's called a gyre. Uh, and as that gyre literally spins up because of the warming atmosphere, it physically forces that East Australian current further and faster and stronger down our coast. So that east coast of Tasmania gets a double whammy. We get the underlying warming that most of the rest of the ocean has and we have this change in current system. And putting those two together means that that's in the top 10% for rates of warming uh, around the world. Mm. And Australia has quite a few of that or, or you know, several large parts of the coast that are um, in that top 10% for rates of warming around the world. And how concerning is it, like we've already you've spoken about seeing changes up till now, how much worse is it likely to get and is how great a problem is it going to be for people and the creatures that live in the oceans around in these areas? Yeah, they're all very good questions. Um, not all changes will be bad. Uh, there will be some, you know, there's some species that are coming into Tasmania, for example, that lots of people are really happy about. So we have, um, you know, snapper and yellowtail kingfish and mahi-mahi and other, other species that are highly prized recreationally. Uh, and so long as they're not having a negative impact on other species that we also value, then that's probably, you know, not really a, a bad thing. And, of course, these species changing distribution are actually, res- this is them adapting, this is them responding um, to, to climate change. So it's a good thing in most cases uh, from the species perspective. From our sp- perspective, some of these changes are leading to different interactions in the ecosystem that are putting things out of balance. And an example of that would be the long-spined sea urchin that I mentioned earlier. They need a a 12 or a 13 degree threshold for the larvae to survive. And as we've hit that temperature off the east coast of Tasmania, um, in winter, when the sea urchin spawns, we now have large numbers of the urchin that survives and they eat the kelp and the plant material and literally denude these areas uh, and turn them into uh, rocky urchin barrens. That's not great because, you know, we value our, our kelp reef sort of habitats. Uh, so do the, the fish and the lobsters and the um, abalone that, that live in those regions. So that's not great. Um, but around the world, where researchers have investigated, we know that between 25 to 85% of species in some cases are already shifting where they live 
with climate. If they were all cruising, you know, down the coast at the same rate, that probably wouldn't be that bad. It would just be the entire ecosystem gradually shifting and creeping down the coast. But because different species can move at different rates, it leads to all these um, changes in, in the trophic, you know, in the food networks where, you know, some species might not have uh, the food that they would normally eat or, or they might um, not have the right shelter and habitat. And so it's really quite hard for us to um, predict what the, the final outcome will be in different places because it's got so many different links that are broken as different species, you know, can't move or some do move and then new links being formed as, you know, species find new habitats or new things to eat. So it's quite complicated to, to figure out what the final effect will be. But we do know that these changes in distribution are affecting human health through changes in distributions of diseases, for example. Um, they're affecting livelihoods um, and you know, conservation, obviously. So there's a lot of different uh, implications of this redistribution of life on Earth because we, we really are living through uh, probably you know, the, the largest redistribution of life on Earth for hundreds of thousands of years. Mm. And how does this movement interact with, um, with things like fishing and pollution in places like the seas around Australia? It's quite complicated. So with fishing, it might mean that we need to change boundaries of, of you know, different um, spawning protected areas or, or those kinds of things. Um, for conservation, it means, you know, like a, a lot of our conservation, for example, is based on, um, you know, we put a box around something and say we're protecting everything in it, but we put the box in that particular place because it held particular species or values or, you know, something. And now we have all those things moving out of the box and new things moving into the box. Um, so we do need to rethink how some of our, our conservation works as well. Mm. And there's a lot of talk globally at the moment about um, both about climate change and about biodiversity loss. You know, on the one hand, we're aiming for net zero emissions by 2050. And on the other hand, there's talk of um, protecting a third of the world's oceans. Yeah. Are these measures enough? And or what, what, re what needs to happen? I think it's, as with everything, it's, it's complicated. And the oceans obviously need more protection. But I do get quite nervous about um, suggestions for blocking out people from large parts of the ocean. And I think one of the really critical things to remember there are Indigenous peoples and traditional peoples all over the, the world. And that's for many reasons. You know, ethics would be, would be uh, an equity that would be one big reason there. But in addition to that, there's a lot of research that shows um, that the biodiversity in Indigenous controlled areas is actually doing much better in general than it is in, um, you know, Western-style managed regions. So clearly, Indigenous peoples around the world know what they're doing. 
Um, and, it, you know, I don't think we, sh- we should be introducing conservation measures that are locking out um, people from from regions. You know, there's, there's potentially other approaches, I think, that might be um, good to, to use there. And in terms of um, climate change and, and uh, reducing greenhouse gas emissions, that can't happen soon enough. We are, you know, locked into another 30 or 40 years of warming, even if we stopped putting emissions into the atmosphere today. Because of the lifespan of a lot of these gases in the atmosphere, um, it would mean, you know, warming for some decades to, to come. And I, But I think the tricky thing is that it just doesn't sound like a lot. Like when we say a degree or two degrees, people often think, oh, whoop de doo that's not a huge amount. Um, but it, it actually has such huge ramifications on our natural systems in in so many ways um, that yeah, it's it's it really is a, a you know a massive a massive massive issue for, for the planet, and I think it's a huge justice issue as well. So young people today will be exposed to extreme events um, in, in just a couple of decades at rates six to seven times higher than what we are now. So, you know, that's a, an example, just one example of, of how climate change is going to be, is already a big issue, but will, you know, shortly become an even bigger one. That was Greta Peckel from the Institute of Marine and Antarctic Science. And that's all we've got time for this week. To listen to this episode again, or any of our previous shows, head to www.3cr.org.au forward slash Radio Blue. We'll be with you again next week, and in the meantime, stay well.